Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day and for the uh, privilege of worship. Thank you that as we open the scripture now, we hear you, that you have clearly spoken in the Bible. And we ask now that by the Holy Spirit's power, you would apply that to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to underscore what Dean said, next weekend, please uh, be here. If, If you're going out of town, cancel your plans and stay here. And if you are here, uh, you should be here Friday night for the banquet, and it's a, it's a glorious time, and uh, if you're not here, please come with a doctor's excuse as the only reason for not being here, really. Well, we're doing this Stewardship of Life study, and the next, this is the last Sunday, two weeks from now, I'll start a series on spiritual warfare. But the Stewardship of Life says basically that all we have is, is given to us by the Lord, uh, and in, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, where Christ uh, speaks very plainly, very clearly about this issue. And we get to the last part of chapter 6, a very well-known passage, and people read it and say, I want to dwell in the rarefied atmosphere of the last verses of Matthew chapter 6, where Christ says, starting in verse 25, six different times, don't be anxious He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Your body is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. He says later, and which of you by being anxious or filled with anxiety can add a single hour to his life? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Not even Solomon in all of his regal splendor was as attractive as one of these simple lilies. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For, for non-believers, the pagans, run after those things, but that sh- should not be the same with you. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow we'll have enough worries of its own. We say, we, we want to live there. We want to live with a non-anxiety type of living. What's the secret? Several years ago, there was a book released entitled The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. And it's uh, a bestseller. And basically what she says is that the reason we have illness or a lack of finances or whatever is that we have not visualized and called that into our lives. That if you visualize it and call it into your life, you will have it, um, which is a bunch of baloney. Slate Magazine wrote about, in their book review said, not only is this book drivel, it is pernicious drivel or evil or harmful drivel. It's horrific. The secret. And yet the secret's a good word. It's used in Scripture Many times in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being full or going hungry, of having abundance or suffering need. And Paul, I believe, used the word secret intentionally because the church of Philippi, like the rest of Asia Minor, was surrounded by mystery religions that talked about secrets. You have to have a certain esoteric out-of-the-body experience and knowledge to really know God. Or he had to say certain words to call forth the power of God. Or he had to have an experience to call forth the power of God. And Paul says, you know, I've learned the secret 
I've learned the secret. And this is the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The secret. Same word is used by a guy named Cyprian in the early church. He's got a statement in the sermon outline. He says, he writes this letter to a friend named Donatus. He says, I have discovered in the midst of the chaos of this world a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. The secret. And so last week we were looking at how to live life out of the concept of the obli father goodness of God. And Jesus says in John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And, and, and then he pushes it down the line of application in this morning's passage. And he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be filled with darkness. And, and, and if the darkness or if the light within you is darkness, how horrible or how vast is the darkness? The eye is, is the lamp of the body. In other words, if you live purposefully before the God who is, if you set your affection and your heart and your ambition upon the things of God, then your whole body will be flooded with light, filled with light. If you don't, it will be filled with darkness. We talked about last week a materialistic worldview and a biblical worldview. Just a couple points here. The materialistic worldview says, I believe in immediate gratification, and then comes the rust. You buy something brand new that's the latest gadget, and a year from now you're tired of it. Or, or you, you, you do go out and you dissipate your body, you do stuff, and you wake up the next day with a hangover or aftershock. So there is an immediate gratification, but it rusts. I was thinking of 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, Peter's writing to the church, the suffering church, and he, he says this in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, the time is now past for doing what non-believers do in your context. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will have to give an account to God. They belittle you because you don't join them in their riotous behavior. So there, there is immediate gratification, but then comes the rust sooner or later. Rust. I... Uh, I have been visiting the convalescent center lately because my mother-in-law hurt her hip and she's going through rehab and she's going to get out this week. She's doing well, but 
Yeah, really, you go to rehab centers and it is it's not good. There are certain people in there that will never leave, basically. And then the people going through rehab will never be on the cover of Muscle and Fitness magazine. They'll get a few more years. But it's a very difficult place to visit. People going up and down the hall in wheelchairs and vacant stairs. It's just tough. And I look at these young nurses, 27, 28, occupational therapists, physical therapists, that do so well in their work. And I'm thinking, what, what, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? See, we, we can kind of hold an arm's length and turn our face and realize or think, well, we, we won't go there, even though we will. They do it every day. And, and if, I, if I have a materialistic worldview and I'm a 28-year physical therapist or occupational therapist, you know what? Bring on the gratification. Bring on something to deaden the reality of what's going to happen. No, we're getting old. It's going to happen. My wife told me a couple of weeks ago, she said, you really need to update your wardrobe. <laughs> she, she says, you're dressing like a 60-year-old. I said, I am 60 years old. <laughs> you know, it's just true. But if you, if you believe that this is all we have and that it is a downward decline, there's no hope of heaven, wow. The biblical worldview says there's immediate joy and purpose and hope, and then there are eternal rewards. There's a, there's a, a purpose and a reason for living, and that's why Christ says, so plainly, don't, don't base your life on what rusts and molds and what people can steal. And then the second point of the, is this, that, that the materialist says, I own it all. It's mine. I, I own it all. The, the, the biblical worldview says, you know, I'm a steward. Everything I have, my, my, my life, my family, my friendships, my calling, my occupation, my studies, my possessions, everything is under the lordship of the living God. And I will give an account. Totally different worldview. There's immediate hope and joy and purpose. There's an immediate oughtness to life. And so, so Christ says with unmistakable clarity, he says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be flooded with light. If you walk in the way of Christ and under the authority of His Word, your body will be continuously flooded with light. But, but if you don't, if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if this light within you becomes darkness, it's a horrible, vast, horrid thing. You know, I, I see it all the time. This verse has been on my mind for several months. Because I just see it. I, I see it played out in people I know. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Conversely, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And so I look at this. There, there, there's, there's, a, there's a scale of lightness and a scale of darkness. There, you know, 
when I look at people who intentionally walk in the light and they open the scripture and they say, speak to me, and they live in humility and repentance, and they say, God, show me and teach me, I see them going deeper and deeper into more and more glorious light. Then I see some people who just spurn God, turn their back, and, and they, they make bad decision after bad decision, and they go deeper and deeper into darkness. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I want to be on the scale that says, Lord, bring light. Bring your energy. Bring your purpose into my life. Speak to me by the Scripture, Holy Spirit. I read an article by a psychiatrist who's in Barcelona, on the faculty of a medical school in Barcelona. And he talks about the, the, the denying of who God is and the enthronement of man. And he says, broadly speaking, in my medical practice, I see two manifestations of that. Manifestation one is the colossal crisis of fidelity, he says. What sociologists call the social instability that surrounds us conceals a crisis of fidelity where the deep-rooted links that used to be for life have now become precarious and with an early expiration date on any and all relationships. With this erosion of commitment, an important source of security and personal identity has been lost. Obviously, this has its price. It's a price we are paying in the shape of an epidemic of broken relationships with an accompanying issues of emotional problems, particularly anxiety, depression, and loneliness. So the second major category is aggressiveness. We see a rising number of suicides, which is aggressiveness directed towards oneself, and of murders, such as the recent indiscriminate massacres of children and adolescents by gun-carrying killers. Aggressiveness also manifests itself in a much more subtle way. So people that go to the top often have in their wake scores of broken relationships as they go for success. Aggressiveness. I, I don't want that. See, I want to go in such a way that my body is flooded with light. See, the, your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, if you're going for God's purposes and God's standards, if you realize you're a steward and life is lived out as an act of worship before Abba Father, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eye is bad, it's bad. It's bad. So, number one, this is an ongoing issue. It's not a one and done you know, you, your relationship with the triune God is a relationship. In, in Luke 21, Christ says this, verse 34 to 36, he says, but, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day, the day of the Lord, comes upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake, present tense, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. 
I read this and I say, you know, we, we, we sit back and say, okay, how's the devil going to get us? Dissipations. Oh, yeah. Drunkenness. Substance abuse. Putting things down your throat or up your nose. Just, yeah, we see that. The cares of this life. The devil says, well, I, can't, I can't get him through dissipation. Can't get her through drunkenness, you know. Side road, cares of life, stuff, more and more, living for myself. See, this is an ongoing battle. Secondly, all of life is lived out in the realm of the worship before a good and glorious and holy and wonderful God. Let me show you a couple of verses. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Wow. God, just thank you. I mean, you've blessed me in more ways than I can even begin to enumerate. Or Psalm 139 how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Your, 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 your thoughts toward me, God, are more than the sand. It's an amazing statement. I, I woke up this morning, I was thinking about this, and I, I thought about a passage in Ephesians that says, that says this, um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. Like, wow. Lavished. In Christ there's redemption through his blood, the work of the cross, the forgiveness of my trespasses or sins, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. Do you see that, that Christ on the cross and the outpoured Holy Spirit have been lavished on you, poured on you, lathered up on you? Do you see God as that type of giving, glorious, good God? Or, or do you see God as someone who gives you His mercies like I share M&M's? I like M&M's. If I'm eating a bag of M&M's, you come and say, hey, can, I, can I have an M&M's? You can have one. <laughs> one. One of the green ones. Take the green. Just one. That's it. No more. No. One. Do you, a lot of us see God and yeah, I kind of, no, God lavished. I just, it's so glorious. And that's why we talk about this Abba Father statement in the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ says time after time, your father, your father, your father, your father. And then he says in chapter 7, the greatest your father statement, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in, in verse 11, if you then, though you are evil parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more? And so Christ says, 
Your eye is the lamp of your body. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Remember that. If your eyes are healthy, your body is flooded with light. Your body is flooded with purpose. Your body is flooded with hope. And so I, I think about a little statement in 2 Timothy where Paul is writing from prison shortly before he's put to death. And he's writing to his younger son in the faith, and he makes this little statement in chapter 1, verse 6. He celebrates the faith of Timothy's grandmama and his mama. And he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God. Fan it into a flame, Timothy. Live and worship in such a way you, you fan it. Timothy, go strong, go hard. He says in chapter 4, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. I'm almost done. You fan into a flame. So I read this book and I ponder this little book of 2 Timothy and I go, why, why does Paul use that imagery? What was he? And I, as I thought it, I think that Paul says that because he's got people in mind. He's got two guys he mentions in verse 15 that have departed from the faith. Philegius and Hermogenes. And then in the same breath, he celebrates the whole household of Anisiphorus. Husband, wife, kids, grandkids, whatever. They've just been encouragers to Paul. And he's saying, Timothy, go strong. And then he gets to chapter 4 and he makes this statement about a guy named Demas. Demas is mentioned three times in the Bible. The first time he's mentioned with two other guys as being faithful workers unto Christ. The second time he's just mentioned. But this last time he's mentioned, this is what Paul says. For Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's deserted me. He's turned. And, and he's thinking, in contradistinction, Timothy, don't you do that. You fan it into a flame. Now, how do you fan into a flame? Well, you go through the book. You're strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. You live as a, you live as a called out soldier an athlete in training, and a farmer who's patient. You realize God has called you to purity. You love the Scripture. On and on and on. And I say, church, fan it into a flame. If you're a believer, fan it into a flame. You fan it into a flame by living unto Him. You fan into a flame by understanding this concept of stewardship that says everything I have is God's. You say, well, how, how, how do you know? Well, look at your time. Look at your heart affection. Look at your bank statements, your credit card statements. That's it. And then Christ says this. With blazing, blazing, clarity. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And really the word for money there just means stuff. You can't serve God and reputation. You can't serve God and your family. God must be worshipped as God. He doesn't say it's difficult. He says you cannot. This is something we all struggle with. That's why it's an ongoing process. You, you cannot. It just, it just can't be done. You can't serve God in stuff. For either you hate the one and love the other or despise the one and be devoted to the other. You just can't. So we just say it means an ongoing, obedient relationship of learning before the living God. You see, um, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. This statement says he's a jealous God. He is God. Um, there's a statement by a guy named John Frame about the jealousy of God. Let me just read it. It says, God has love for all of his creatures, but he has an exclusive love for his own people. And he demands the same from them. When they violate that love, he behaves as a godly husband. He becomes jealous. There's nothing wrong with that kind of jealousy. It reflects the intensity of his care for the love relationship. When a man's beloved wife turns away and loves another man, he is rightly jealous. If he were not, that would be evidence that he does not care for her. So I've been, read some books about the Revolutionary War the last couple of years. This is a picture of a man named Joshua and Elizabeth Loring, late in life. This is a picture of a man named uh, William, I forgot his name, Hal. Yeah, Hal. William Hal was the commander of the armies of Great Britain during the Revolutionary War. His brother was the commander of the British fleet. Um, so William Howe entered into an agreement with this man, Joshua Loring, and this woman. She was, at the time of the Revolutionary War, when it began, she was a beautiful, blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed, 25-year-old. And a General Howe gave this guy a plum position that paid him lots of money, which was being in charge of all the prisoners in the U.S. or in the colonies, and he was a horrible taskmaster. But the, the uh, agreement was that she would become his mistress. And so this woman and this man would spend weeks together, and there's some belief that he didn't push the war very hard because he was too enamored with Mrs. Loring. And I read that, I read that account, and I just, my skin crawled. My skin crawled. And I thought, what, what kind of man would accept a position and basically give his wife to be someone else's mistress? It's horrible. What should be done to a man like that? Shot. Or at least sent to an island where there's no seams 24 hours a day, every day of the year. You see, if you're married, 
you should have a jealous love for your spouse. Jealous. It's exclusive. I told you before that criticize me, but if you undo to criticize my wife, I know where you live. And if I can't take you, I can hire somebody that can. Seriously. And God, God says, I woo over you with a jealous love. The book of James says, says, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. When you crave the world's applause and affection to the exclusion of the knowledge of God, you hate God. We're to be people who live before the living God. And so here, here's the, here, here's the thing. When I think about the jealousy of God and the fact that, that God says, first commandment, know the gods before me. Second commandment, don't make an image and bow down to that image because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I go, God is incredibly God-centered. He is eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is unchanging God. And then when you step back and read the Bible, you say, well, God's jealousy for the glory of His name and God's jealousy or yearning for my welfare go hand in hand. And it's a glorious thought. God's jealousy for His name and His desire for my being to be bathed in the light of the gospel of Jesus go hand in hand. And I think about a passage many of us have memorized. In Jeremiah 29, is during the Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel have been uprooted from their land because of idolatry and carried off to a foreign land for 70 plus years. And all hope is gone. All hope is gone. And a prophet named Jeremiah comes on the landscape and he, he preaches and teaches. And they don't listen to him, but he still tells the truth. And at the apex of his preaching, he says this. Thus says the Lord, I know the plans I have for you, not for evil, but for wholeness, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. And you step back and the Lord says, you know, my plans for my people are for their wholeness and their joy and their purpose and their peace. And that happens when they call to me and they come and they pray and I hear. And they seek me and they find me and they seek with all their heart. And I just step back and I look at this passage and I say, God, God, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see. Because the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, flooded with light, flooded with purpose, flooded with a sense of rightness, that's what I want. And I got to realize I, I can't serve two masters. I can't do it. I love the one, despise the other, be devoted to one, and be despairing of the other. I, I, can't, I can't serve God and stuff. I've got to be a child of God. So may God make application to our hearts, really. Let's pray. 
we are your people, Lord, and we thank you that we can come on the Lord's day and we can sing and praise you and we can listen and think and we can open the Bible and we hear your word. We read it. We think it. Uh, Lord, I, I ask that you would show us that the eye is the lamp of the body. If I purpose in my heart to do the things of God and live that way and structure my life, my time, my relationships, my finances, my future under that purview, then my body is filled with light. I thank you that you tell us time after time in many and various ways, I know the plans I have for you, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Thank you that you called yourself, Lord Christ, the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Oh, God, give us eyes to see. Thank you that your desire to be glorified, your desire to be honored, and our desire for wholeness and joy and purpose are coupled together. Thank you, Abba, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for being jealous for our affections. Thank you for lavishing upon us the mercies of Christ. Not penuriously granting them, but lavishing them. And I pray we'd see a God who lavishes and who loves. And we would rejoice in the redemption of this found through the work of the cross. God, use us, I pray in Jesus' name.